dive into the Word of God together again. Father in heaven, it is no accident that we were each born on a specific day at a specific hour in a specific place and that we will die in a specific place at a certain hour on a certain day according to what you have written in your book. You have planted us on this earth for the season in which we live, in the place in which we live, to be on mission for you, to bring glory to your name. That is why we have been created as human beings. And we thank you as believing Christians that you have saved us and by spirit and word, you have showed us the true nature concerning yourself, concerning ourselves, concerning the world in which we live and why things happen as they do. Lord, all of those mysteries are revealed as much as we need to know in your word. And so we thank you for that. And as we go to this lofty and magnificent passage now in the next part of Colossians, that you have inspired, that we believe is trustworthy, inerrant, authoritative, potent, and powerful. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would help us to see these realities afresh, our place in the world, who we are, and who you are as God. And that we would go from this place, Lord, eager to share the gospel with others, eager to serve you, in our corner, whatever that may look like. Father, you are so good to us, and you are faithful all the time. We ask forgiveness for our sins, and we thank you that they have been covered by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And Father, now come and make us glad by your word. We pray that this worship time that we've enjoyed so far would just simply continue now and then as we get prepared to leave this building later. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So maybe you can relate to, to this. Um, I, I admit that there are moments when I start to feel overwhelmed with what is going on in our world. Uh, maybe you do too. Viruses, wars, climate concerns, riots, shootings, scandals, uh, confusions, divisions, earthquakes, chaos of all kinds. I think it would be very easy for us to simply conclude that the world is disintegrating right before our very eyes, that, that, that after all, there is no coherence to human experience. You ever seen one of those old movies where a town, town crier shows up suddenly in a town square very loudly and very publicly announcing, proclaiming the decree that the king has given him to proclaim. Have you ever seen a scene like that? The town crier does not come proclaiming thoughts that he came up with 
or his own ideas. Rather, he is duty-bound to proclaim only the decree of his king. Now, one of the most common Greek words in the New Testament that is translated as preach or proclaim carries that very sense. So that as the guy that is standing behind this pulpit this morning preaching, I am duty-bound to proclaim not my own clever ideas, but the decree and the truth of the King, Jesus Christ. I am a town crier for the King as I stand before you today. I give you his message and not my own. And the truth that I have come to proclaim from the king this morning is that he remains in firm control of everything. Every event, doesn't matter what it is, every event on the human side, every happening in the world of nature, every detail, every detail of the entire global story has happened and continues to happen right now within the sphere of his sovereign rule. Are you with me today? Right now, you and I live in a world that despite all appearances, remains decisively under his authority. God is working out the whole of everything including things that are ordered, things that are chaotic, things that are good, things that are evil. He's working out the whole lot of it toward his blessed and sure conclusion that he has ordained for his world. It's happening right now as we speak. So, my friend, don't fear Don't be anxious, don't despair, don't panic, put your hope and your trust in God. Well, that's the summary of the message from our king. And now as town crier, I bring you to the very words of his message. Beginning this morning at Colossians 1.15, he says, he that is, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, He is what? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, our plan in these initial moments is to camp on this verse for a while because there is so much here for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When Paul writes here that the Son of God is the image of the invisible God, what he is really getting at is the relationship, the relationship that exists between Son and Father. The relationship. The Son of God is now and has always been 
and will be for all eternity the image of the invisible Father. That is to say, friends, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has eternally, we need to see, eternally, he has had the same form and the same likeness as the Father. The Son of God has forever been the perfect reflection, the perfect revelation of the Father. The uncreated Son of God, and hear me when I use that word, uncreated. The uncreated Son of God for all eternity, not only in his incarnation, but for all eternity has been the crystal clear mirror of the life and the character of the Father. He is, is the image of the invisible God. There was no beginning to his imaging the Father, and there will be no end to his imaging the Father. He is eternally the image. In the days of his incarnation, he said, and I think Robert quoted it in his prayer providentially, he said in John 14, 9, Oh, you didn't quote this one. There's another one coming that you did quote, Robert. There was a lot of scripture in that prayer. It was rich. It was rich. So he said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me, says Jesus, has seen the Father. For all eternity, including those days of his incarnation, of course, he perfectly imaged the Father. But now it gets even deeper. This is a deep text. It gets even deeper and more breathtaking. The Son of God is, notice, he is the image, Paul says. He imaged the Father in eternity before the world was ever created. And then the world was created. And at the magnificent moment when human beings were created, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, we've established from the text that the eternal Son of God is uniquely, is uniquely the image. But notice carefully, Adam and Eve were created in the image. In other words, Adam and Eve were created as creaturely, listen, as creaturely reproductions of, or creaturely copies of, creaturely replicas of, the archetype, the perfect image, who is the eternal Son of God. Adam and Eve were created in the image. As Tipton has put it, he puts it like this, Adam and Eve were to be an earthly sketch of the eternal pre-existent Son of God. Again, Adam and Eve were designed to be an earthly sketch 
of the eternal pre-existent Son of God. But of course, Adam and Eve fell into sin, didn't they? Tragically, they fell into sin, and their reflecting God now became broken and tarnished. The mirror was now cracked. And then in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, when the eternal Son of God assumed human flesh, born into this world, to physically live, to teach, to die, to be resurrected, he successfully did what Adam did not. The eternal image, the Son of God, was born into this world in human flesh, and he overcame temptation, yes, and he obeyed God in all things, and he loved God with his whole heart, soul, and strength, and his neighbor as himself, and he ruled creation where Adam had failed to do that. Calming the sea, healing the sick, ruling creation. And so Jesus Christ, the eternal image of God, is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The last Adam. Why? Well, because while he is the eternal image, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, he came to earth to perfectly image God as a fleshly man, which is what Adam was supposed to do, but did not. And then Jesus continues, of course, to perfectly image God in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his session, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father, his coming return, and his eternal kingly reign over the new creation, the last Adam. He is the image of the invisible God, says the Apostle Paul. We have to move forward for the sake of our time this morning. And the Son of God is the firstborn of all creation. Now, in the fourth century AD, there was a church presbyter on the North African coast named Arius. Arius was almost 70 years old, toward the end of his life, when he ignited a serious controversy teaching, among other things, Arius taught that the Son of God had been created by the Father and that the Son was therefore different in basic essence from the Father. Arius taught that the Son of God had a definite beginning, that he was created while the Father had no beginning. The Father is uncreated, but the Son is created, said Arius. And one of the proof texts that Arius used in his argumentation is our verse. Colossians 1.15, where the Son of God is called firstborn of all creation. Arius understood 
that this phrase meant that the Son of God had been born in time, that the Son had been made by the Father. And even if the Son of God was the first and the highest creation of the Father, still, said Arius, the Son of God was created at a certain point in time. So for Arius, the Son of God then was not co-eternal with the Father. He argued that there had been a time when the Son of God was not. Again, just to summarize, according to Arius, the Son of God had been made by the Father at a certain point in time. Well, the bottom line, friends, is that Arius got things very, very wrong. His theology was off. He made fatal mistakes interpreting the words of Scripture. And as it turned out, the church council that had been convened to rule on the ideas of Arius very decisively, very decisively and very thoroughly refuted those ideas and determined that they were heretical. Heresy. Arius had been telling lies about God. But there was great fruit in that council's proceedings. What came out of that council was a definition that they hammered out concerning Christ's divine nature. And that definition has remained to this very day, 2023, it has remained as the orthodox standard for the church. That definition is called the Creed of Nicaea, otherwise known as the Nicene Creed. But here's the sad part, friends. The sad part is that to this day, the Jehovah's Witnesses still take the heretical position that Arius took in the fourth century. I went to their website the other day and one, in one of the doctrinal discussions there, I found these words, quote, God created Jesus before he created anything else, close quote. And then to back that up, they quote Colossians 1.15 on their website. That is heresy, that's error. That's wrong. The Bible very clearly teaches that the Son of God is uncreated, that he is eternal, that he had no beginning. He is true God from true God. He is one substance with the Father. He is begotten, not made. And he became human for us humans for our salvation. So then the phrase in our verse, firstborn of all creation, does not mean, does not mean what Arius contended it meant. So what does it mean? Well, let's think on this together. And I want you to come with me for a moment to Psalm 89. A big part of what Psalm 89 does is it celebrates the covenant that God had made with David. And speaking of David, in the 27th verse, God says, notice, and I will make him make David, what? 
the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And we ask here, how in the world can the term firstborn apply to David? If we think purely in terms of his biological birth, David was not the firstborn in his family. He was actually eighthborn. David had several other brothers, siblings, who had been born before him. So firstborn in Psalm 89 cannot have anything to do with David's biological birth order. It can't have anything to do with the time that David was born, comparing that time of his birth to the time of his other brother's births. It's not that. And then if we think maybe, well, let's think of David's kingship. But even there, he wasn't firstborn either, because who had been king in Israel before David? Saul had. Saul was the firstborn king of Israel, if we want to put it that way. So firstborn in Psalm 89 does not mean that David was Israel's first king either. And so what does it mean for God to make David firstborn here? Well, in fact, you may have noticed already, sharp Bible scholars, (laughs) that this verse in Psalm 89 actually spells out for us, doesn't it? the meaning of firstborn. Notice that right after that word firstborn, we have the phrase, the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, this is poetry. And in Hebrew poetry here, there is a direct relationship between that word firstborn and the subsequent phrase, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's this way. That in the world of Hebrew thinking, firstborn, listen, was often a way to describe status. To describe status. So for God to make David firstborn meant that God was making David the highest status compared to all the other kings of the earth. So that the term firstborn in Psalm 89, 27 has to do with a superior rank, a superior status that David had in the midst of all the kings of the earth, given to him by God. And friends, that's precisely the sense of the word firstborn in Colossians 1:15. When Paul says here that God's son is firstborn of all creation. Paul was raised and reared and steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. He's borrowing the concept of firstbornness from Psalm 89. Paul is saying that Christ is firstborn in the same Psalm 89 way. Christ is superior in rank. He is superior in status, supreme in status, in fact. But in Christ's case, he is supreme, not just over a limited parcel of land like David was, but he is supreme in status over all creation. And so we need to be very clear on this 
Firstborn in Colossians 1.15 has nothing to do with being born or created first within time, like Arius thought. Rather, firstborn here is about status, it's about superior status, precedence. That's a word you used in your prayer, Robert, preeminence. That's what this is about, preeminence over the entire creation. He is the eternal, perfect image of God. This is the one with whom we have to do. The eternal, perfect image of God, who is the supremely sovereign ruler over the whole of created order, including your life and all its details and mine. He's ruling right now. You were born... And I was born to bring glory and honor to this exalted king who rules over all things. You and I are given breath in our lungs and a beating heart for the purpose of glorifying this good, benevolent, sovereign, beautiful, powerful, tender, loving, awesome, supremely mighty king. That's why you're here. And so my friend, whoever you are, I plead with you. I'm now 53 years old, more than likely on the latter tail of my life. And I plead with you, don't waste your life on fleeting, petty pleasures and frivolous concerns. You were created for a far more profound and noble and God-centered purpose. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him, how many things were created? Is there anything that wasn't created by him? All things were created. Notice the connection between the end of verse 15 and the start of verse 16. So verse 15, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And we said that this means that the uncreated son of God is supreme in rank and supreme in status over all creation. For, verse 16, because by him all things were created. You see this? The reason why he is supreme ruler and Lord over all creation, verse 15, is because, verse 16, he created the whole of it. All of it. And as the one doing the creating, bringing the creation into being, his primacy over that creation is automatic. He created all things. He himself was not created. Therefore, he has supremacy over the whole of creation. The uncreated eternal son of God was there creating alongside father and spirit in the Genesis 1 moment of creation. Yes? 
as the creating God, he has automatic superior status over what he has made, including you and including me. We are not our own. And being this supreme, eternal Lord who is at the very center of everything, he deserves what? He deserves our unending worship and our unending allegiance. I hope this morning that each of us is feeling humbled, as we should, by the exalted, glorious Jesus Christ, and that our hearts right now are rising in reverence. This is my prayer. Rising in reverence for him, even as we are considering him in this passage. He is worthy. Amen? He is worthy. Notice in verse 16 that Paul is at pains to stress that the entire range of creation has come by Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, throw back to Genesis 1, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and then it's repeated again, all things were created through him and for him. This is Paul's way of saying that the A to Z, or if you're American, A to Z, of the created order has come by Christ. It's come by Christ. Matter, non-matter. Animate things and inanimate things. The things we can sense and the things we can't sense. The things we know about and the things we don't know about. Every power whether that power is earthly or heavenly, even powers that have willfully fallen away in rebellion from God's original design, all things have come by Christ. The comprehensive sweep of the entire created order has come by Christ. And we need to pay attention in this verse to those little words there, by, through, and for. By him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. And all things were created for him. By, through, for. The word by here in the original Greek suggests that all things were created, listen, within the sphere of Christ's influence. All things were created within the sphere of Christ's influence. Or all things were created in connection with Jesus. By him, in his sphere. And that word through means that Christ was the agent of creation. Everything came through his agency. Here's a verse quoted in Robert's prayer. Boy, this worked out well this morning. John 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Through him. And then we have that last part at the end of verse 16 that says that all things are for him. Think of it, my friends. All things, oxygen molecules, pine trees, granite, human beings, the Great Lakes, 
salamanders. All things have him, have Jesus Christ as their purpose and their goal. Amazing. For him, every single part of the entire created order to the uttermost is right now moving toward him as the ultimate goal. All things have their purpose in him. Everything. May the profile of the crucified, risen Jesus Christ and soon coming King, may it be raised ever higher in this place. Are you with me this morning? May, Jesus is the Holy Spirit's favorite topic. The Holy Spirit lives and exists to exalt the second person of the Trinity. May his name be made great among us. May his praise resound in all of our neighborhoods. He is the highest of the high, the supreme one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ. And our final verse this morning starts by saying, he is before all things. The Son of God is before all things. He existed eternally, as we've said, before the created order ever came into being. He is before all things in a temporal sense then. He was existing eternally before any of this came into being, before all things. But he is also before all things in terms of rank, in terms of being superior to those things as their ruler, so before all things here is in a temporal sense, but it's also in, a, in, in the sense of superior status. And we can think of it this way. Think of this. The man Adam, going back to Genesis 1, the man Adam had been before all other human beings in a temporal sense. Adam was created as a human being before anybody else. And Adam was also before all others with his specific God-given task to rule and have dominion over the entire creation. The last Adam is before the entire creation. In the temporal sense, pre-existing before creation ever came into being. And he is the true Adam the far better than Adam, who successfully rules and has dominion sovereignly and supremely over the entire creation. And Paul ends this magnificent, it's hard to even preach this passage because it's so lofty. He ends this magnificent section with these words, and in him... All things hold together. I think I've used this illustration before, but if the friction that is right now holding the nails and screws in the walls of this building, if that friction were to suddenly disappear, the building would collapse instantly. And without the presence of friction in the broader world, we would have to get on Kijiji this afternoon, sell all of our bikes, sell all of our cars, because without friction frictioning, it would be impossible to cycle or drive. 
and without any friction, the pews that you're seated on right now uh, would suddenly start sliding around and then they would collapse. At this very moment, the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the risen Jesus, soon coming King, at this very moment, He is sustaining friction. Amongst all the other things that he's sustaining, so that your pew stays put and that this building stays up and your car will be able to drive after this service. He is the cosmic glue that holds all things, holds all physical laws together right now. Without his holding the universe together, things would just simply disintegrate and collapse. As Tom Schreiner says, the physical world does not run on its own as if it had an internal mechanism by which it sustains itself. The world, listen, is sustained and upheld by Jesus Christ. Indeed. And I think that's a truth that is often lost altogether in the whole discussion of climate and the physical condition of this world. As believers in Jesus Christ, as his church, we must never forget that Jesus Christ holds all things together for as long as he wills that the things be held together. He's done it since the initial moment of creation, and he will continue to do it into the eternity of the new creation. It's an element that's lost in that, whole in that whole discussion. Well then, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we wrap this up, our verses this morning declare that the crucified risen king who we know and who we serve, he is the eternal, uncreated, perfect reflection and revelation of the Father, the image. Our verses declare that he is the firstborn the one with preeminence, superior status and rank over all the creation. Why? Because he made everything. All things were created by him and through him, and the goal and the purpose of all things is found in him, for him. The whole of everything is for him. There is not one millimeter of the entire created order that escapes his lordship and his authority. Do you know this exalted, breathtaking king? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Will you trust him with your Monday morning? We began this morning with a brief discussion of how overwhelming this world can often feel. I've found that much of my own anxiousness about life in this world, been reflecting on this, it can be chalked up to the ridiculous notion that I have that somehow I must maintain control of my world. As if I am somehow sovereign. And then when the world seems out of my control, that's when the anxiousness starts creeping in. But the truth is, and I want you to listen carefully, that life is generally not in our control. It's in Christ's control. He is sovereign, and we are not. 
All things, including my life, your life, were created by him and through him and are for him. Everything is within his sphere. He maintains authority and preeminence over all things. So stop fretting, and I will too. There's so much, friends, we don't understand about life in this world. Would you agree? But Christ Jesus understands everything comprehensively and unshakably. And believers, he unfailingly, I want you to know this as we close now, he unfailingly has our best interests in mind at all times in every way. He never leaves us by ourselves, ever. And so I exhort you this morning, and then I'm done, to trust this trustworthy, supreme, preeminent, eternal Christ, the Lord of all things, as we've seen in Scripture today. Trust Him in everything. Let's pray. Father, it is easy sometimes for us to talk a good game about trusting you. But when cancer comes, when money evaporates, when family troubles assail us, difficulties come, Lord, we confess to you that sometimes it feels like our faith is paper thin. And so I pray today, Lord, that this vision of you that you have given us in these verses in Colossians, would, that we would carry this vision with us this week, that your spirit would come and nudge us and remind us of this, so that no matter what we face, we take a step back and say, I'm not in control, but you are Jesus, and I trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.